1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of At the Boundaries of Home Ownership, Credit, Discrimination, and the American State. The book is published this year by um, Cambridge University Press, and the author is Chloe Thurston. I have the pleasure to have Chloe with me today. Chloe, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Heath.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. You've been very busy, and so I've been eagerly awaiting for you to have just a couple of moments free to talk. Uh, Before we get to talking about your uh, really interesting new book, maybe you can just share just a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, So I'm a political scientist at Northwestern University, and I specialize in American politics. And uh, just really briefly, uh, what I work on and am most interested in is the politics of what political scientists call the hidden welfare state. Um, That would be sort of the set of public policies, government programs, and run regulations that shape our economic well-being, but that we often don't recognize as being part of the welfare state or that many citizens don't even think has anything to do with politics at all. So from the tax treatment of uh, the benefits that we get from our employer to the tax breaks we get for homeownership or for saving for college education or to government credit programs that help us pay for things that we want, you know, housing or higher education, um, these are all areas that citizens tend not to recognize as being related to the government, but have a very fundamental role in shaping their own
1: well-being. Yeah, and let's let's start there, uh, which is uh, such a great setup for what you do in the book. Uh, you refer in the book to the public-private, uh, sorry, the public-private welfare state and home ownership. Um, what does this concept encompass? Because it's a uh, not the the entirety of the public-private welfare state. And, and also for your purposes, uh, when does this policy regime start? So maybe you can place this conceptually first and then also in history.
0: Sure. So conceptually, um, what I mean by the public-private welfare state is uh, the set of public policies that tries to use different types of incentives to get private providers to maybe provide things either at a price that they might not Otherwise, be willing to provide it at or sort of a scale that might otherwise be unprofitable. So, here, uh, health insurance is a is a great example of this. It's something that has is very difficult to provide on the private market alone. But federal policies involving the tax treatment, for example, um, uh, or involving sort of uh, uh, whether it, the extent to which we all sort of need to purchase health insurance. Um, Uh, help to affect the market in ways that make it easier to allocate on a larger scale. So I study homeownership. Um, That's what this book is about. And homeownership is part of a policy regime that dates back to the 1930s. Uh, And so one way to sort of illustrate the importance of policy here is that if, say, it was 1929, 1930, and you wanted to buy a house, uh, you probably would have to put 50% down. Um, Most of us don't have 50% of the value of a house, um, t- to put down in cash in order to buy a house. Um, and so consequently, the um, homeownership were, rates were a lot lower in the 1920s and 1930s than they are now. The reason that we have higher homeownership rates now, or at least one reason, is that since the 1930s, the government has played a lot of different indirect roles in making it possible for us to get mortgages that require us to pay uh, much lower down payment. Uh, you know, 20% instead of 50%. And that give us 30 years to repay our loans instead of um, anywhere from two to 12 years, which would have been the case in the ni- in early 1930s. I mean, this has to do with loan insurance from the Federal Housing Administration um, and the Veterans Administration as part of the GI Bill. It has to do with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These are institutions a lot of people didn't really think about until the financial crisis. But Fannie Mae actually dates back to the 1930s. Um, and then also uh, the tax treatment of homeownership, which the book deals a, a lot less with, in part because this is something that's been written on by many political scientists.
1: Now, this this arrangement that you describe um, provided uh, wide and and quite generous benefits to some, but not all. Uh, I wonder if you could describe a bit how the government drew boundaries about around some of the uh, homeownership policies that you were just describing and, and what the, maybe what the measurable outcomes on homeownership rates were for those that were included, but also those that were left out of these policies.
0: Sure. So, um, yeah. And so, you know, the book's called at the boundaries of homeownership. So, uh, I think you cut right to sort of one of the main things that the book looks at. Um, so, you know, as I t- described before, um, Prior to the government's involvement in home ownership, home ownership rates were reasonably low, and one of the reasons for this was that. It was just difficult for many people to afford afford to purchase a house outright unless they already had the money to do it. So in getting involved, though, in sort of enabling the rise of this modern um, long-term low-down payment mortgage that we all sort of take for granted now as Americans, the government still had to determine sort of, had to draw a line between what they thought would be a safe loan? What would be a safe bet for the federal government to insure? Because uh, the federal government was ultimately going to be on the hook if these private loans fail, at least to some extent. Um, and what types of loans or uh, characteristics of, of the borrowers or characteristics of the house would be too risky, um, would be sort of unsafe for the government to put its um, the, the weight of its insurance behind? Um, again, because taxpayers ultimately are at the bottom of this. And so one of the ways that they did this was by creating underwriting criteria for loans. I think, uh, you know, it's become a lot more well-known um, recently just because of a lot of the recent attention that writers like ta Coates have um, given to it, the role of the federal government in redlining. So in um, basically saying, you know, we won't underwrite loans to houses that are in neighborhoods that have... Um, that are ethnically, um, mixed or racially mixed. So, you know, there's a, uh, a non-white neighborhoods essentially. Um, so this is one of the areas in which boundaries have been drawn. So neighborhoods that weren't all white were considered to be too risky for the government to put its stamp on, to, to um, to, um, put its stamp on or approval for, for home ownership, for mortgages. Sorry. Um, The other sort of one, and I think one that's actually gotten a lot less attention, um, has to do with sort of characteristics of the borrower. And I talk about this in the book a bit, um, but gender and family status also played into the government's calculation about whether or not um, a loan was safe enough for the government to underwrite or too risky. And so, for example, through the 70s, really until 1974, it was perfectly reasonable and even considered good business practice for a lender to ask a woman who was trying to get a housing, a mortgage to buy a house, to provide a letter from her doctor saying she was on birth control or had had a hysterectomy, uh, and this was because gender itself was considered a suspect category when it came to, uh, you know, providing or ensuring a long-term mortgage because of this idea that a woman might have a child and then decide to leave her job and would then be unable to pay back that mortgage, which would put the government at risk. So these are different ways that boundaries end up being drawn around these policies that, you know, while on one hand open up access to homeownership um, at sort of affordable terms, terms that make it possible for you know millions more americans to actually become homeowners but at the same time these different boundaries get drawn around who would be considered safe to lend to and who would be considered risky to lend to in order to protect the government
1: now the other big part of the book is is this um uh idea that you you present which is um boundary groups uh would you talk a little bit about this idea of boundary groups and, and what some of the things that boundary groups do uh, that relates to uh, the uh, the kind of homeownership policies that you describe?
0: Boundary groups are uh, organizations. So uh, generally, organizations that already exist, uh, citizens advocacy organizations, for example, the NAACP or the National Organization for Women, whose constituents find themselves outside of the boundaries uh, to access these policies, as I have just sort of described, um, it, it for homeownership and for mortgage credit. And um, they engage in a lot. This, this is what the book actually um, uncovers and details the activities of. And, and what I show is that boundary groups engage in a lot of activities uh, involving recognizing the role of the government and not just the market in um, their constituents' exclusion from homeownership um, and from sort of government-backed uh, credit programs and then contesting them. So the book outlines this sort of four-step process uh, that I call detection, um, information, contestation, and expansion of the boundaries. Um, and I, I don't want to get too Far into the weeds with this um, because I know we have a limited amount of time, um, but one reason that uh, I'll highlight sort of one thing that's very important about boundary groups. Um, and again, you know, I've mentioned that the government's role in home ownership is one that's often uh, unseen; it's hidden from most people. It, you know, if you're able to buy a house, if you have a mortgage, you just spent a whole lot of money. <laughs> Um, And you're not really super inclined to see yourself as being the beneficiary of a government policy or program. Again, you're paying a mortgage. You you have something, you know, this obligation. Um, And so on the other end, this means that a lot of individuals who find themselves unable to get access to homeownership, to get access to a mortgage, don't necessarily have the ability to understand that. Um, experience as something that's related to policy they might attribute it to something uh, that's related to their own economic circumstances you know I don't make enough money maybe or I, I didn't have enough wealth saved up um, and so one of the things that boundary groups do that these pre-existing organizations do is they end up serving as this repository uh, they start to collect the different experiences and complaints of uh, of their constituents, and they began to aggregate those into broader patterns. So, for example, the book begins with the um, experience of a woman named Sharon Campbell, who, um, she was a lawyer, uh, she was back to, She moved to D.C. with her husband in her late 20s, and she went to get a mortgage loan, and they refused to give her, to count any of her income for a loan unless she was willing to provide some documentation from her doctor saying she couldn't get pregnant. Um, And initially, she says that she thought this was something that was just sort of idiosyncratic. Maybe this was a crazy lender, um, but it was unrelated to anything that she, um, you know, it wasn't like a systemic problem. This was an individualized problem. Maybe she herself was deficient. And then she comes to realize, along with a lot of other women who are arriving um, in Washington, D.C., professionals who take on these jobs in the government. She works for the SEC, that this is actually a very broad pattern uh, of exclusion, and it's shaped fundamentally by federal government policies. Um, And the reason I actually start with Campbell is that she becomes the head of the National Organization for Women's Credit Project, and they start uh, to embark on this nationwide campaign to uh, educate women about discrimination, about exclusion from credit markets, and to invite them to actually write in with all of their experiences so that they can begin to aggregate this into a broader collective problem and then they can then also link it to public policy and not just the sort of, you know, invisible hand of the market, which is another uh, factor that can shape whether or not women are able to access credit. So um, that's the role that I see boundary groups as playing is, uh, you know, taking individually experienced... Um, uh, issues like exclusion, discrimination, turning them into collective pro, uh, collective problems that are amenable to political con- uh, contestation.
1: And and how effective are these groups, um, either in the earlier time period that you study or, or the later time period that, that you were just uh, alluding to? Um, but how effective are they in dealing with the the discrimination that's uh, very much built in, though in a hidden way, uh, into these home ownership policies? So. Um, do they, do they, uh, are they influential? Uh, do they, uh, find a way to connect these stories that they aggregate, uh, into effective political influence?
0: You know, that's a great question. Um, and it's not necessarily the most satisfying answer. Um, so one of the things I found, and I start to study this from the 1930s onwards, is that the groups are very effective in the beginning, in particular, in, uh, identifying, um, big patterns of, um, of exclusion, you know, ultimately discrimination in the case of African Americans and women, uh, you know, they're able to identify this. They're able to articulate it as a broader pattern, link it to government policy, provide sort of an alternative explanation. Um, again, that's rooted in the government's own decisions about, um, who's safe and risky and ultimately to even change some of the policies and regulations that, uh, that constrained their constituents' access to mortgages. Um, So the NAACP, for example, embarks um, on a um, sort of years, and actually I would say decades-long effort to change policies related to redlining, uh, related to the use of restrictive covenants, um, etc. And they managed to secure actual... Changes to policies, um, to to formal laws and regulations. This is the same with the National Organization for Women and the other various women's organizations that were involved in the same, similar sort of politics in the '70s. Um, But, like I said, there's this. There's this is only a partially satisfying answer because at the same time we still see durable um, inequality in terms of the ability of different. groups of people to, to get mortgages. So if you look at the financial crisis, for example, and who was harmed by it, African Americans and Latinos were more likely to be offered loans on um, uh, uh, subprime loans, um, loans on sort of riskier, less generous terms than were white homeowners. And so you certainly still see a legacy of, um, of exclusion. Um, the other thing, too, is that um, while public policies can you know, change some types of practices, it also can just make um, different types of discrimination. It, it can change where discrimination happens and, and how it happens. So organizations were really successful in changing the formal laws in the 1930s and 40s through the 70s. But it's harder to say that they managed to transform um entirely the sort of uh the barriers that their constituents faced to, to homeownership.
1: Now what are, one of the, the interesting parts of this is your focus on this this set of policies that that are hidden. So it's not the policies we typically associate with um segregation or discrimination. Um but they might be just as damaging and their effects just as profound as they relate to these boundary groups, um, how would you compare the, those two different types of, uh, policy regimes, those that are, um, uh, well noted and understood by the public and those, those other ones that, that aren't, that are, that are hidden or submerged. Um, if you take a step back from, you know, the findings of the book and compare those two different, uh, uh, discriminatory practices, which one ultimately does more harm and, and which one is, are, are groups able to, uh, intervene more effectively in?
0: Well, that's a great question and a good way to put it. Um, you know, so I, one way of thinking about this is, um, pu- you know, policies that are well noted and understood by the public, um, and understood as public, as public policy. Well, it should be a lot easier, uh, for, for people to intervene in those areas because they're already recognized as being shaped by politics by being inherently political. Uh, This is a lot more difficult in areas of the state that are less visible, that are more hidden or submerged, to use another political scientist, Suzanne Mettler's term, Um, because if you can't see the role that the government is playing, then suddenly you have a lot of different explanations for um, an outcome you might see. Again, in the case of homeownership, uh, you know, you look at maybe the differential between black and white homeownership rates, for example, historically. Um, you come up with a lot of different explanations for why you might see that difference that don't seem to have anything to do with policy that might have to do with differences in average incomes by each group or um, individual or difference, or issues that have to do with maybe individual private lenders uh, that again are not sort of part of a, um, uh, that are not sort of tied more concretely to public policy. And it's one of the things that, I'm interested in when exploring the politics of home ownership and the politics of these these different areas is the role then when you have these invisible policies uh, of some sort of organization or entity and actually having to work to make invisible policies more visible. to sort of make the role of the government legible in a way that starts to make it appear more like these, uh, you know, more visible, well noted public policies that you you mentioned. if these organizations are um, able to make these policies look more visible, more concrete, then suddenly they are things that they can mobilize against, that they can try to build um, broader coalitions to, you know, to, to support them. Them, in. but that really hinges on their ability to take what's otherwise hidden from public view and to articulate it as something that is, um, you know, the product of, of public policy.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, the the title of the book is At the Boundaries of Home Ownership, Credit, Discrimination, and the American State. Uh, The book is published by Cambridge University Press this this year, and the author who you've been hearing from is Chloe Thurston. Chloe, thank you so much for your time today.
0: And Thank you for taking the time, Keith.